This is episode 77 of the Kindred Mom podcast. I am your host, Emily Sue Allen. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Kindred Mom podcast, where we are in the Ages and Stages series on kindredmom.com. I hope that you will check it out on the blog or the podcast feed and journey along with us as we explore the various stages of childhood in all their glory. Today's conversation is all about perceptive parenting, which is an idea I've been thinking about as I have observed my children and tailored my parenting approach to each of them because of their own unique personalities and their needs. And I just wanted to talk about this because I think some moms feel like they have to be the same with every kid and, you know, fairness and all that kind of stuff. And I just think that there is a more nuanced way to approach the needs of each child. And so Jay Jones and Lindsay Corn joined me for this conversation and also we recorded it during the stay-at-home orders and so my whole family of nine was at home while we recorded this and I haven't mentioned this on the podcast before but I actually record in a basement room in our house it's underneath our kitchen so there were some squeaks from the floorboards above me uh, during this recording and I tried to take as many of them out as I could but you will notice them in the recording so I just wanted to mention it and also we've been sending out a weekly digest that just shares what we've been doing on Kindred Mom with some extra links we think are helpful to moms in this time. So if you haven't joined our email list, you can do that in the show notes for this episode, and we hope that you'll join us. Thanks so much for listening. Well, today we're jumping into the second episode of the Ages and Stages series on Kindred Mom, and I am excited to have Lindsay Cornett and Jay Jones with me as we talk about a concept that I call perceptive parenting. And this is an idea that has been forming in my mind for a while um, as I've mothered all my kids. It's not a term that I've heard talked about specifically with these with this terminology, but um, it's something I keep coming back to as a foundational way for the way I approach parenting my own kids. So today we're going to talk about it. And Jay, I'd love for you to say hello and um, just tell us how you're doing today. Hello, everyone. Happy Easter. Um, I am um, feeling great today, feeling part of nature. We're out. We've been out in the garden today and seeing the Easter bunny this morning driving through. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Yeah, feeling great. Great. Optimistic. And Lindsay, how are you guys doing today? Hi, everybody. We are doing fine. We're now I feel a little tired, but we're doing good. My husband just took the kids out to the backyard into the alley to scooter and ride their plasma cars around for a little bit. So I had like 45 minutes in a quiet house. So at the moment, I'm I'm feeling pretty good and I'm excited about this conversation. Mm, Well, thanks so much for being here. And I'm just excited to be in the Ages and Stages series because it's so applicable to where we are with parenting because you're in some stage somewhere, right? (laughs) And um, so with this concept I call perceptive parenting, it's just something that um, I feel like my thought process about it is that as I have grown as a mother and watched my kids go through a couple of stages, I feel like learning how to observe them and kind of tailor my parenting approach to their individual needs is something that has really benefited my family a lot. And so I would love to dive into how it is that we 
pay attention to what our kids really need and how they individually tick their learning styles and the things that might be a little bit different between each one. So if you guys have um, anything you'd like to share about what you have observed about your kids, um, maybe the next couple minutes you can give us some context about this idea in the midst of your family. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear from the both of you about this too, because you have kids that are a little bit older than mine. And so you've seen more stages than I have, you know, my oldest is six and then they're four and three. So we still have a lot of stages yet to go, but I think that I came into motherhood sort of assuming that I would come against a problem or we would have this issue with a child we would need to solve. But then that once I figured it out the first time, we'd be good to go for like the rest of parenting that like I would (laughs) learn a lesson and then we could move on and tackle the next lesson. And instead, of course, I have learned that with each child, with each stage, you have to revisit some of these things and make adjustments as you go. And obviously that just makes, it makes sense in hindsight, in retrospect, but at when I first got into this whole journey, I wasn't anticipating that. I think that's some of my perfectionism probably mm-hmm. talking. Mm-hmm. But you know, like why would my children be any different than any other friend or family member? I think maybe I have assumed that because I'm raising my children and in theory, they're all growing up in the same sort of way, in the same sort of environment, that they would be more similar. But they just have such unique perspectives and personalities, right? Like, and ends. So it's just important to look at them as unique individuals and let that kind of inform my parenting. Are you, Jay? Yeah, I feel like this was easier and now it's getting harder. Like looking at your kids and seeing their needs and seeing their different ways of communicating. I think it's gotten harder. And maybe it's because my kids before the um, mandatory closures were in public school. And so they spend so much time away. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that a lot of the time away then takes away some of my influence and takes away some, you know, takes away from the ability to bond. And so I'm missing things. But I think um, there was a point where I understood just I just understood a lot more about how they communicate and like, for instance, how my son will really hold things in and then he'll just at some point spew it all out. But in a sideways manner, if you're sitting, you know, if you're spending time with him and sitting by him, it will just come out and it'll be like he slowly puts the picture together for you Mm -hmm. or how my daughter, um, my young, well, she was my youngest daughter until my two-year-old came along. How Charlotte will just kind of like, she's very aggressive and assertive and she wants to know everything now and she wants to ask you the hard questions now. And so I feel like um, as they're getting older, they're challenging my and their father's confidence, our security about Mm -hmm. our ability to answer, to to answer and to address and understand, Mm -hmm. um, understand them. And it's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that this whole idea of perceptive parenting started when I had my second or third baby and just realized that even from the very earliest stages, like we're not only talking about, you know, communication between like an older child who can really verbalize what they're feeling, but down to the earliest days, I noticed that 
the particular nuanced things that each baby needed. And I'm an ultra sensitive person. So I feel like I pick up on fine details of things. And it was kind of in the process of having my second, especially he was so different than my first uh, was in that first year of life that just noticing how unique they were even before they really had any deliberate mind to say, this is who I am. (laughs) You know, it's like just what was kind of baked into the baby. (laughs) And, um, and so what has been interesting for me is at those earliest stages of babyhood, I feel like I've learned how to read cues that are not necessarily, um, they are communication from a child to a parent, even if it's not words saying, I like this, I want that, <laughs> or whatever that is. Right. And so in paying close attention to those cues, I think I've been able to anticipate their needs before it's kind of like all out screaming time. And I really have had several babies that didn't cry a lot because I was just tuned into what was going on with them. And if they started to stir or fuss or whatever, I'd be able to be like, Oh, I know you're stirring at like three in the morning and I'm just going to preemptively get you, feed you, put you back to sleep before you're really, really awake. And I feel like small things like that have made a really big difference over time. And so for me, this idea is something that is intended to smooth out the bumpy parts of the parent-child relationship uh, because we really do have the ability to see them from a unique vantage point that no one else spends as much time with our children as we do. No one else sees them on the best days and the worst days. And um, I just think by tuning our vision to what it is that we're seeing and what does this mean, like, for example, toddler tantrums, sometimes a tantrum it really is them trying to say, I have this need and I really need you to see it. Um, it's not just a defiant in your face, I'm going to rebel against you. It is sometimes that, but sometimes I just think we have to look under the surface to what is the underlying thing they're trying to communicate. So I'm just curious if there are things you have noticed about your kids that indicate that they might need something that they've not been able to verbalize to you? Or do you have cues that you are able to pick up? Um, and what are those? Yeah. Um, well, when you take it down to the baby level, I wasn't even thinking about that. And I had been reading um, Reggio Amelia philosophy, of, you know, early child, early um, childhood, you know, education and stuff like that. And um, they say that little people like speak a hundred languages or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really thought in these ways, in these deep ways. You sound super grounded, Emily, as usual. And like, I feel like, I don't know how I've missed so much. And I'm just starting to catch up at, at four babies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I start. I see in her that she not only communicates with me in all the ways that you're saying nonverbal, some of it is verbal or, or pre-verbal, whatever you call that, when they, they're saying something, but you don't necessarily know the words. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing all that stuff and seeing this the special needs and interests that she has. But I'm I'm also learning that I understand a lot, but don't always communicate. And that that has caused some issues. So I may be perceiving things and, and planning to do things, but I don't communicate that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times my kids feel like I'm not listening or paying attention. Yeah. And so um 
I'm having to do more of that, which I don't know where, where that comes from, why I don't. It's, it's just like I want them to trust that I know the thing and I'm on it and I need to stay focused in my in this way that's, you know, inside of me, mm-hmm. but they need me to be communicating. Um, but you're talking about things that you see. So I see things with the baby, but with my, I always am saying my son, I don't know why I keep talking about him, but I can see, literally see him drop, like his face drop and different things like that. My husband can see it too. And we started talking about this. Like we just, you know, we had some situations happen on vacations and stuff. And he started before I even would tell him, he would just say, what Tucker, your face is dropping. What's going on? What are you thinking? Yeah. So we, we just, know, there's just certain things like that where, you know, jump on that now. Yeah, <laughs> That's, for sure. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And I, I would say like you just mentioned needing to communicate to everybody what you already have kind of worked out in your own mind. This is something I have found with a larger family and needing to go anywhere. Like my husband used to love to be really spontaneous. Like we won't make a plan for the weekend. We'll just do whatever. And I'm like, there are nine people who have to do whatever together. (laughs) So um, I feel like we do need to make a plan, even if we're leaving some space, like, okay, for these four hours, we're not planning anything and you can spontaneously decide anything you want, but everybody needs to have some anchor points about, so they know what's going on. And I know that yeah. my kids really care. They really want to be helpers. They really want to know what comes next so that they can be ready or they can be involved in a productive and meaningful way. And so for me, the idea of perceptive parenting is seeing what each one needs in order to be successful for the next steps. And so when we're leaving the house, which is not often lately because we're at stay at home zone, but when we are leaving the house, I usually like an hour ahead say, okay, we're leaving at this time you need to have your breakfast eaten, your clothes on, your shoes, you know, already on your feet, grab your coat, make your lunch. Uh, Cause I do delegate a lot of stuff that I don't, I don't directly handle a lot of those things unless they're the youngest kids. And then I check in around 30 minutes to go. I'm like, all right, if you don't have these things done. And then I usually will go to specifically to my six year old, who is the one who likes to wait to the last minute to do any of those <laughs> things. Yes. And I'll just, you know, at 25 minutes before we have to leave, I'll be like, okay, here are your clothes and here are your shoes that I helped find for you really because I'm proactively trying to help her be successful. Right. And I think that it really helps our family specifically, and maybe other families as well, the kids just like to know what's happening. And I used to just be like, just, you just go along for the ride, (laughs) you know, like you don't have to know everything and they don't, (laughs) I can decide what information to give them. Um, For example, I will not tell them until two hours before they're going to have a play date with a friend. Hey, we're going to so-and-so's house because for the week ahead of it, they will hound me. Is it that day yet? Is it that time? Can I I go? And I'm just like, I do not want to hear all of the mommy, mommy, mommies. I'm so excited, (laughs) you know, Uh, until it's like, okay, it's only two hours away. And guess what? And you can be like so excited for those two hours before it comes. And so in that way, I don't, I don't spell out everything uh, ahead of time, like weeks in advance or days in advance even. But I think that when you start seeing what it is that they're looking, they're just looking for information to know how to prepare yeah. themselves to take the next steps. And and my six-year-old too, just like I've been trying to teach her just how to 
tackle some of the household helping, picking up things, clearing the table, simple things that the older kids do now that they have had some practice. And she's one that has really always been very slow to want to help with anything. But I have been telling her, if you are able to do these things without me asking, I would be so, so happy. And so now she's all on this train of like, mama, I did, I did these things without you asking me. And now you can be so happy with me. And I'm like, and I am so happy with you. And so I think that especially kids in that three to seven range, uh, a lot of times they are looking for ways to be meaningfully involved in household operations. And so seeing the opportunities to help them do that, I think is, is a really neat thing. One thing I was thinking about Jay, as you were talking about talking to your son about like what you notice in his face and what is he thinking? One of the things I was thinking about is how, when we are making an effort to be perceptive and to communicate these things with our children, we're also helping, like, it's not just beneficial to us, right? It's beneficial to them as well. Like we're helping them develop some aware, some self-awareness and understanding, like, I, you know, a lot of times have to talk to my six-year-old about like, hey, I am noticing that when you start to get tired in the afternoons, you get really grumpy with your brother. So maybe we should make a plan that at some point in the afternoon, you're going to go have a little alone time in your room because you really like to have alone time. Mm -hmm. And just having those conversations, I'm sure we'll get to a point when he's a teenager and he doesn't want to hear that from me, you know, but I think when they're young, you kind of have that opportunity to try to help them develop some of that, that self-awareness. Yeah. One of the other things that came to mind for me is like discipline with mm-hmm. my kids and how different they are and require different things from me. And for my husband, like we, the goal is always the same, right? We're trying to develop the same sort of character traits in them, helping them be a, a good member of the team and of the family. But like my oldest really seems to respond better to like intensity. Like he is intense and he sometimes requires like, Hey dude, like listen (laughs) to me. Like this is what is happening right now. But my middle guy, oh man, if you use just even the slightest harsh tone with him, he just crumbles. He is like so Mm -hmm. sensitive and his feelings are so hurt. And he really requires more of like a handholding, like more of a gentle, like, Hey buddy, like let's talk about what's happening right now. And just, you know, noticing that and being willing to make adjustments for it, it doesn't always come naturally in the moment. But, um, even a willingness on my part to say like, Hey, I'm sorry. Like I spoke to you in a way that's not very helpful. Let's try that again. Mm -hmm. Um, is sometimes necessary, but that's one of the areas for my kids where I have had to make some of the biggest adjustments I think is in those moments of discipline or correction or any of those sorts of things. Yeah. I had this funny experience with my oldest daughter, um, probably five or six years ago, we had been in our first classroom environment with our homeschool co-op and she had a teacher that was not me who was trying to involve her in what was going on. And anybody who knows her knows that she is like enthusiasm times a hundred. Everything is amazing. Everything is delicious and just 
I mean, it's over the top. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, okay, simmer down a little bit. But in class, <laughs> the teacher is trying to do the more luxury part of like giving information and trying to get the whole class just to listen to what she's saying. And my daughter's interjecting with like, oh, that's so cool, Miss Carla. And like, just like really overactive, distracting the class with her enthusiasm, which is a great problem to have. But um, the teacher came to me later and was like, I just don't really know how to handle this because it's not typical that you'd have a distracting student who is distracting for these reasons. Usually they're like not paying attention, not really participating. And I just had to tell her like my daughter in particular, she is someone you cannot give her hints at anything. She will not catch them. She's like, it's (laughs) over her head. You have to say to her, you need to stop talking right now. And she would be like, okay. Like it would not hurt her feelings at all. She'd be like, oh, now I know what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) And um, whereas like I have other daughters of mine who are much more sensitive. And if you just even look at them wrong, they're like, what do I do? (laughs) You know, but that's just a funny example to me of like her very endearing personality trait that in that social situation was not working out so well. And and my friend who was teaching her, she was like, are you sure? Because I just, I really don't want to like squash her enthusiasm. And I was like, I am sure she really just needs you to tell her straight and she will adjust and, and listen, which is one thing I also love about her is that she's just so teachable. And I think that when you can observe what your child specifically responds to and does well with, that you can get to that spot where you don't have to Uh, You can just meet them directly where they're at with what they need and help them succeed. Yeah. Emily, I'm wondering, because you have such a large family and you have so many kids, do you ever feel like some of them get lost in the shuffle or like, do some of them have quieter personalities that like, if you weren't paying attention, it might be easy to sort of let them fall into the background that in, you know, because all of your, some of your kids might require more of your attention. And I'm wondering like how you navigate that. Cause I know for me getting one-on-one time with my kids is so important to really help me see them and focus in on them a little bit more. And I'm just curious, um, for you, how that plays out in your family. Yeah, I think that that's always a risk. I don't see it as a very frequent problem at our house, partly because of the lifestyle that we have chosen. I think that losing a child in the mix is often more of a function of busyness and being overcommitted um, than it is there are too many people in this family. So I can't deal because I think when like right now we've been home for four weeks and I've had really meaningful time every single day with all of them. I'm really pleased with that aspect of our quarantine experience. I do have a couple that are a little bit more vocal about what they need or what they want. And um, I, I do have to sometimes just kind of say, well, I hear what you're saying and you're going to have to simmer down because this one over here needs my attention. Um, I think that as a general value from their earliest stages, like when they're in a crib, if they're squawking at me and I ha- I know that they're fed, I know they're changed, just because they're upset doesn't mean they get out. You know, it's I, I kind of let them 
work it out a little bit, <laughs> you know, like right now when we're all getting ready for bed in the evening, cause we kind of have one general space in our house where everyone's sleeping area is. So I will get the baby ready for bed and then I set him inside the bed while he's awake playing. Sometimes right. he's a little fussy, but he will wait until I've helped everyone else through their bedtime routine. Uh, unless he's, if he's like really upset, then I'll just put him to sleep first. But I think that giving them time on their own to soothe themselves, entertain themselves, learn how to wait, you know, for someone else to be helped. I think that goes really well when they know their needs are going to be met. They're not going to be met on demand, which is where I think some people with their first or second child get kind of stuck is they, yeah. they, they're so responsive at the moment their child makes a sound that the child grows to expect if I am not attended to, on command, then I will pitch a fit, you know? And um, there's just so many things that they can wait two minutes. And you can, I say to them, mama will be there just one minute, you know? And I've even had my four-year-old, he'll say, mama, I'll be right there just one minute. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I have, I have taught you how to say that. So. <laughs> there is a, a potential downside to this approach. Um, it does make me laugh and I don't mind at all waiting a minute when it is delivered with such love and, and cheekiness, you know, it's, it's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Um, I think that is another thing that kids can learn from a young age that the whole world does not revolve around them. Like, I don't feel like there are very many times we have a child with a need that is just hopping mad about it um, because they really am proactively looking for, okay, what do you need today? Um, sometimes they just need help figuring out how to get over the hurdle of boredom. And I'll just say, well, I can offer you some jobs to do. Or there are these three or four options of activities you can go do on your own, you know? And they are, um, sometimes they're like, I'll do the jobs. Tell me what jobs to do. And I'm like, all right, well, here you go. Here's a list. And I think that uh, a couple of our, our family sayings, I would say one of them is, you're a very important part of this family. And I say that to each one of my kids at different times, especially when they seem like maybe frustrated about a sibling interaction or they're feeling like nobody respects me or my space or my things. And I just lead with, you're a very important part of this family and we need to know how we can support you. I try as much as I can to empower them to either do what they need to do for themselves. So if you need space, you, you just tell your neighbor, your buddy, your guy in the bed next to you, I need some space right now. And, or I will, I'll create a space for you if you need some quiet time to read that nobody's bothering you. Or um, in the cases of my sons, they are all on one end of our playroom where they sleep. And there's not really dedicated space for them to store their private personal things that are not shared toys and stuff. And so we, uh, when they finally came to me and said, mom, everybody's touching my Pokemon cards or whatever it is that is so special to them. I was like, well, let's make a space for that. And so I got them some um, storage boxes with lids that they could put 
up above uh, our bookshelf where the littler kids can't get to the boxes, even if they wanted to. And I was like, but it's your job to make sure the things that you care about keeping separate from the little kids, you have to get them in the box and you have to get the box where it belongs. And that will be your personal space, you know? And so I don't find it especially challenging to lose a child in the mix. Um, I also think that we really try to teach them how to care for each other and um, not, not in a parenting capacity, but just seeing that um, I talked to my one son who's kind of our, our catalyst agitator, born leader. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I like, I need you to pay attention to what's going on with the other kids. And if what you are doing is not bringing peace and reconciliation and building your relationship stronger then I need you to rethink how you're approaching it because he's the one that kind of just orders people around and they're like but you're not the boss of me and I'm like that's right he's not the boss of you and you can push back and say I'll do what mama tells me to do not I'll do what Judah tells me to do (laughs) so um, I don't know if that answers your question but there's I love love your creed I love that you have that creed for your family and saying you know you're an important part of this family and I also love how um, you said they trust as long as they can trust that their needs will be met. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Um, I lost a little bit of that in the, when I had Poppy, when I had, when we had our fourth and I really wasn't super mobile. I wasn't doing very well at all when I first got home. And I remember Charlotte said to me, she came, she had been the baby and she came to me one day and she says, mama, you're not taking care of me. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a very tough time. I mean, because there was just so much I couldn't do. And daddy was taking care of things that I always took care of. And, um, you know, until she needed that, but it was good. It was good for me to hear that. She's one of the kids who would say that. I mean, you know how they, you know, your kids have different personalities and some Mm -hmm. are very direct and some are very indirect and some would forfeit everything to, to just please you. And then some will be like, you're not doing your job. (laughs) <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, it was really good for me. And actually, it gave me it gave me something to say for all the the hard things that I have to do, you know, that she doesn't like, but that are still part of my parenting. I say, well, this is. Do you remember you asked me to take care of you? This is part of taking care of you. This is how I take care of you. Yeah. So yeah, it was hard to hear that, but I think it's really important though that. You have to understand if your balance is right in life and your balance is right in life. And it doesn't, you don't have to have a bunch of kids to miss the balance. You know, if you can make your kids feel safe, that you do see them, that they are important and that you will make sure their needs are met. I think you can do it whether you have however many kids, you know, uh, you know, one or, or a bunch of kids. And um, I think that was just, that was really helpful for me. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, a long time ago, we talked about this on the podcast at some point, but I had an experience um, probably six or seven years ago with a neighbor who lived down the street. She's about three houses down. She's a woman who's about 20 years, 25 years older than me and grandma, seamstress, totally just this warm, inviting 
gal who had spent most of her adult years doing childcare for others in a home daycare situation. And so when we met her, we'd go down to her house and uh, she had all these toys for the kids to play with and this great backyard. And, you know, I, at the time, I think I had four kids. And so we'd all go down there and hang out with her and her two grandsons. And she made this comment at one point about like, she's like, I can tell that your children are well cared for. And I was like, Thanks. (laughs) Like, how can you tell? I just kind of was curious about her comment in the first place. And she said that over the years, she's really grown to be able to read children like ones who are are cared for well and, and that are attended to in particular ways have certain traits about them. And it's really kind of comes down to the peace that they have personally, because they know that they will be heard and they, that they will be attended to if they need something. And um, that has stuck with me all these years, because it is very easy to be caught up in busyness. And, yes. you know, another small example is <laughs> years ago, my oldest daughter, I was trying to get them all into the car. I'm like, hurry up, hurry up. And she's like, mama, why do we always have to hurry everywhere? <laughs> I was like, oh, because I, I don't know that we really have a reason why we need to hurry. I just feel that, you know, that angst of, I need you all to get going where you need to go. And you're not doing that very efficiently. And that just makes me irritated. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. mostly the reason, not because we really had to hurry. Um, yeah. anyway, so just some of those things are what come to mind. It reminds me of what Emily Freeman has said. And I think that she pulled this idea from someone else, but of course I don't remember the original yeah. attribution, but she has said that, you know, Jesus was very busy during his ministry, right? Mm-hmm. He constantly had people around him wanting to talk to him, wanting to be healed. Yeah. One or another, and yet he never seems hurried Mm -hmm. in the accounts of him. And even there are passages where you can sense like the urgency, you know, it's talking about things happening at once and quickly and that sort of thing. But Jesus always sort of has this calm and this peace and good ability, like we're talking about to perceive the precise thing that someone needs, you know, Mm -hmm. more than one different blind person might come to him. And yet he responds differently to each of them, you know, based on what he sees they really need. And that's a good reminder for me too, you know, that um, it's so easy for life to get busy. And I do try to like watch our calendar and our appointments really carefully and not let it get too full. And Mm -hmm. even still, I can just get caught up in my to-do list in one seemingly urgent task and another and have this sense of like needless hurry. And so I'm always trying to remind myself that like very few things that we're doing require like rushing urgency. You know, we can have a slower, more peaceful pace, I think. Um, But we have to choose it, you know, because I think it's not, not necessarily the norm or maybe not necessarily what our instincts might Yeah. Well, and and to to specifically pick the hurrying issue, like in order to not be hurried, we do have to be prepared because there's certain things that have to you have to have shoes. If you're out of the house for more than two hours, you have to have snacks or a lunch. And I think for a long time, I just wanted to be able to pick up and go like I was able to do as a single person that didn't have responsibility for all these extra little people. And preparation was just not it's something that I had to learn the hard way by being unprepared many different times that I needed 
to be able to figure that out. And that requires perceptive parenting. That requires knowing what the needs are going to be two hours or three hours or four hours from now and preparing for like, how can I meet those needs then, even though they're not here yet? And also about hurry, I think hurry is something that, like you said, urgency can be there without the hurry end. I just think that active listening is required, active turning to our kids and seeing what they need, even if we don't have to um, stop every single other thing that we're doing in order to be attentive to them. But it can't just be a pat on the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I said that yesterday. I was like trying to give kids, I was going on a walk in the neighborhood. I was trying to give the kids some instructions for while I was gone because my husband's in the office on a conference call and they're just all like doing lunch and some other things. And I said, so I need you to do this, this, and this, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And, and, and one of my kids was like, and the blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. And that's everything else that I mean to say right now that I'm just going to not, and I'm going to shut the door. (laughs) I feel like that's what not to do, not the blah, 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 just (laughs) just you figure it out, Um, but more zeroing in. Like I could have just taken a deep breath and said, these three things are what you need to do while I'm gone, you know, Um, but because of the, the struggle, it is sometimes to just get over the hurdle of everything is hard. Everybody wants something from me. The input is higher than it usually is. And, you know, I had this unrest and I just had to get out, had to go, had to go right then at that moment. So that's an example of mom fail or whatever. I don't don't know if I would say it is mom fail because I've had that happen. And, and this ties back, this goes back to what you were saying, Lindsay, about Jesus. Um, What you may, what you were, what I was thinking of when you were talking about that was what else he did was he went off alone and he prayed. Sometimes I think we can get so filled up that we cannot even see what's in front of us because we're just like, it's just, we're overflowing with things. And I have ever been at the front door talking and then just said, there can be no more talk. I must go outside and I must walk alone mm-hmm. and catch up with God and have one of our side conversations mm-hmm. um, or direct conversations, however, and hear from the Lord. When I do stuff like that, um, a lot of times he'll tell me the very things that I need to be keying in on, that I need to to be paying attention to. Um, He'll show me an interaction that we had that I need to go back. You Mm -hmm. know, so I think that's part of what allows you to be perceptive is to clear out some of it, of the noise and hear from the Lord. Yeah. Recalibrate. I feel like that's what you're describing and... Well, these are good thoughts, ladies, and I would love to wrap up in a minute, but if there's anything else you wanted to ask or share about the concept of perceptive parenting, now is your chance. Well, I think I was just kind of reflecting on the value of, which is something we've talked about before on this podcast and in essays on the blog, but the value of spending some time thinking through what's really important as a family, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because for me you know, like we were talking about, I might need to take a different approach for one child or another when it comes to discipline or correction or teaching or anything. But I can do that because I've taken some time to think about like, what's most important to me? Like what character traits do I really want them to have? Mm -hmm. How do I want us to be spending our time and our energy? You know, and I think that this perceptive parenting idea is probably 
um, really key, you know, to creating the kind of family culture that, Mm -hmm. that we're after. Yeah. One thing I didn't mention yet that I, I did want to say is just how I think we can overlook how small adjustments can make a really, really big difference. And it can be as small as just the tone of my voice. I could say the same exact words in a slightly different tone and get a whole different effect on my children. Um, or sometimes this happens a lot in the still napping years of babyhood and toddlerhood. But, you know, if they're not sleeping at night very well, I always look at what is the daytime sleeping situation and can I adjust that by even a half an hour and get a better result for the nighttime go to sleep situation. Um, I just think that sometimes the solutions are so small, they seem dumb, like, oh, that can't possibly make a big difference. But sometimes it really, really does. And, you know, there are lots and lots of examples I can think of, like the witching hour when everybody is like late afternoon, they're hungry, everybody wants to eat, but dinner's not ready. Like perfect time to have a platter of veggies out with some ranch dressing on the table. And you can just go to town, eat as many veggies as you like. (laughs) And it really doesn't ruin any dinner because it is healthy foods that you want in them anyway. And they're very motivated because they're very hungry, you know, and it's something that I just feel like brings peace to that hour. We don't do it every day, but we do it kind of often to just say, all right, it's not worth it for me to say no food until dinner is on the table. If this small little step will bring peace to what would otherwise be a really unfortunate part of the day. (laughs) Uh, So... Unfortunate is a nice word for that. Yes. Um, I just want to say that small adjustments can make a big difference. And if they don't, then choose a different one next time. You know, that's the one awesome thing about getting to start each day new is uh, if it didn't work yesterday, then try something different today. But um, just don't overlook that a small change can make a big difference. I love that. Well, thank you, ladies, for being here. And I uh, just so hope that as we all learn how to be more perceptive parents, that this idea and the things that we've talked about can be a blessing to your families. And I do want to say, I've been trying to just speak up about this a little bit more often. Um, we'd love for listeners of our podcast to come and find our email newsletter that we've been sending out once a week with things that you can find from Kindred Mom, the blog blog and podcast episodes, and also some curated links that our team just continues to collect through the week, things we think will be really helpful for you and would love to be able to send them to you in our newsletter once a week. So anyway, thanks so much and ladies have a great day. You too. Bye. You too.